This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. Continuing with our focus on the National Handicapping Championship taking place this weekend at Bally's in Las Vegas, we are joined by Eric Wing, Communications Director at HorseTourneys.com, a companion site of horseplayers.com where you can qualify for or enter all manner of cash tournaments and tournaments where seats for events like the NHC or the Breeders' Cup Betting Challenge are awarded. I've found contest play to be a great way to sharpen my handicapping and wagering skills. I encourage anyone in this game who wants to up their game to explore contest play as a way of getting to that next level. So I was interested in talking with Eric, obviously, about contest play, but also, as we always like to do here at Can Do, talking about the life journey that brought Eric to this place, along with other random musings along the way. Eric was there for the founding of the NHC, and as a result, has some interesting thoughts about contest strategies, and what I will refer to as the Great Fours controversy. Along the way, I was forced to own up to a rather pointless attempt on my part for some divine intervention related to contest play. So in addition to Eric having a great, wry sense of humor, he obviously is a bit of a father confessor. I also thought Eric had some really interesting perspectives on the issues facing our sport and some possible remedial steps that need to be considered. And he ends our conversation with a famous quote from the late President Gerald Ford, which I encourage all of us to ponder every day. I enjoyed our discussion very much, and I hope you do too. Enjoy. Eric, you've had uh, a good bit of your professional life in racing, and right now you are the communications director for horse tourneys and you publish a blog a couple of times a week based on uh, or talking about some of the contest results and developments etc always always with a little bit of a humorous uh, bent in it that I think is uh, makes it makes it kind of fun and something more than just the dry rereading of contest results right uh, thank you Bill yeah I, I try you know there there are only so many different ways to say that uh, Joe Smith had five winners in three places and scored $117 in one, uh, one R 7,500 guaranteed game. And it's, I always remember Kenny Maine back when he was doing a lot of horse racing stuff and he was looking to do more horse racing and do less sports center. And he said there, there were only so many ways to say that the, the Blackhawks defeated the blues last night. <laughs> and so, so therein, uh, it comes the, the, the attempt, I'll, I'll say, for for some humor here and there, and people who read the blog regularly will know instinctively that my humor tends to slant towards kind of nostalgia and people of my age who are you know grew up in the '70s and '80s, and fortunately, uh, it, that that is, is a pretty good mirroring of uh, <laughs> right. of contest players. Right. Look, it, people like you and I. Our players tend to skew a little older and they tend to skew a little on the successful side. They've got the disposable income. And I think that's 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 something that racing shouldn't shy away from. Uh, when I was 
working at Reader's Digest, it was much the same thing in terms of that was a magazine that people uh, were familiar with in their youth. Um, if, if nothing else, it might have been in, in the bathroom uh, in a lot of houses, as well as doctors and dentist offices. Yep. But um, uh, at the Digest, our readership grew acquainted with us in their youth and then tended to leave it during their 20s and 30s when college and chasing members of the opposite sex and starting a family and getting going in in one's job tended to be the priority and and people tended to rediscover the magazine later in life particularly after the family had had started and things had settled down a little bit more and and to me there's a real parallel there with racing it's not something to be embarrassed about or 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 try to explain away uh, I, I came to the game in my youth when I was a teenager, um, asking my father to illegally set set up a New York City off-track betting phone <laughs> account with for me, despite the fact that I was only 15. You know, those operators couldn't tell who was at the other end of the line. <laughs> right. And he, you know, he he was game enough to do that. And then, all right, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I was look, I I stuck through it right throughout i never there were no let-ups for me in my in terms of my interest in racing but i think a lot of people um get acquainted with it see it on tv during the triple crown most likely um in some cases the breeders cup and then tend to come back to it because it's a game that lends itself to those with disposable time and disposable income and sometimes people in their 20s don't have a lot of either that's a good point. What, what, Erica? So at at age fifteen, what was it about horse racing that you know made you want to get into it uh, deeper? Um, what was it that first attracted you to the game? I guess. Uh, great question, and it's one I can answer pretty easily. Um, when I was a kid, we got the New York Times delivered to the house, and like most kids, I would I would look at it while eating breakfast before heading off to school. And uh, I would immediately toss away the other three sections and just look at the sports sections. That's all I cared about at that age. And so it was all, you know, Mets, Yankees, Jets, Mets, Rangers, Islanders, that type of thing. And uh, around 76, I started noticing that there was this kid my age, actually he was about a year older than I was, but still young. And he was winning like three or four races every day at the at, at aqueduct and i didn't know anything about racing but i thought it was pretty cool that somebody my age was not just participating but succeeding at a at a top level track like aqueduct and then i saw a picture of the guy and he geez, he looked he's a year older than me but he looked about three years younger than <laughs> i did and it was steve cawthon uh, okay and um it, it progressed from there. Back then, the Times started uh, printing the entries in the paper, or, or they did print the entries and results in the paper. They don't do that any longer, of course. But uh, I would cut out the entries, circle his his mounts, and he was typically riding pretty much every race because he had the bug and he was killing it. Um, but I would clip it out, put it on my nightstand, and then when I had breakfast the next day, I would uh, take the entry from the day before and compare it to the results to see how he did. And it typically did very well. He was sportsman of the year before mm. in, 
Sports Illustrated before he ever won the Triple Crown, which is kind of an amazing thing if you look back at that, what, what the odds of that be now. Wow, I, I did not realize he was a sportsman of the year before he won the Triple Crown. That, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, and I, I tell you, in my life in racing, I've met a lot of, you know, quote-unquote famous people. The only one I get starstruck around is Steve Cawthon, who's a terrific guy. I, and But because he was in, in no small part responsible for my interest in racing, and which, which obviously went on to affect my life quite a bit, um, it's always such a thrill to be around him. And, and Steve is fiercely proud of those Sports Illustrated covers, uh, and as, as we all would be. But he was on, I believe, twice before he ever won the Triple Crown. There was one... Um, there was one cover photo of him that that jumps to mind. I th- think he's wearing the you know the viola summer silks, the green and gold, and it just said the coffin phenomenon. And this was kind of when I was at, during the time I told you about when he was winning four or five a day, and all mm. his horses were going off at half the price that they would normally would based <laughs> right. on traditional right. handicapping. Yep. Um, and then I think there was one other. And then, of course, when he won the Triple Crown with Affirmed, um, he was on again for that. But he was Sportsman of the Year before winning that Triple Crown in 78. And again, <laughs> the odds of that happening now oh, would have yeah. to be you know, astronomical. Through the, I, I actually, sad to say, I can't even imagine that ever happening again, honestly, given the state of the sport. Um it sounds like uh, he was the Ramon Dominguez of his time, actually. If you remember back when Ramon was riding, after a while, especially at Aqueduct, um, like you said, traditional handicapping got thrown out the window, and uh, he'd be half of what he should have been based on on traditional handicapping. Yeah, uh, it, it's. I, I always love it when you see that happen. It doesn't happen very often, that, that kind of situation where the jockey sort of trumps all else <laughs> right. in terms of how right. people are betting the races but when it happens it's, it's exciting the time I, re- I i only remember a few other such instances one was a few years after coffin uh another apprentice came on the scene and started winning a lot and we all know his name now though not for being a jockey it's wesley ward uh, oh, he wow. was very pop or very he had a, a very hot run uh, the problem was with Wesley is that he uh, <clears throat> he started growing and he just got mm. too big to be a jockey. Kent DeSormo, when he started in Maryland in 86, was kind of that way also. I didn't follow Maryland racing as closely as New York, but he was, you know, his mounts were almost guaranteed to be first, second, or third choice, in part because the trainers were fighting over themselves to get him, get him. Um, get him. on their horses with the five pounds off so it's it's one phenomenon we don't see as much anymore it's it's it seems harder and harder for apprentices to break through let alone make a name for themselves Um, the eclipse award for apprentice jockeys you know very few big names anymore in in that Mm. category but it is exciting when it does happen so, Eric, you uh, you know you mentioned Reader's Digest, and you know you were 15 years old, obviously got into racing, and now you are you know have spent a good part of your career in racing. But you, I think, started out your career at at Reader's Digest, which I maybe I'm just revealing my age, but I do remember very fondly from a, from a kid all the way up through really um, 
a good part of my adulthood until the the internet kind of took over. So you went from racing to uh, started interest in racing to college to Reader's Digest. How did how did that all happen? Well, uh, you know, I used to joke that I I used to have to hide the uh, racing form under the New York Times when I walked into the office and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and anyway, um, I, I always a big racing fan. I was the editor for a couple of racing stories that were in Reader's Digest, both okay. written by Jay, both written by Jay Hubdy. One was on Sunday Silence. The other was on uh, Wayne and Jeff Lucas following Jeff's sure. yeah. uh, terrible accident. And I guess by virtue of my interest and and the articles that were popping up in Reader's Digest for no apparent reason that were on racing, um, a group then known as Thoroughbred Racing Communications got in touch with me to vote in their weekly poll of top thoroughbred racehorses, which okay. I was more than happy to do. Fast forward a few years, and the magazine business in general, Reader's Digest in particular, were starting to fall on hard times. And maybe the Digest was a little ahead of the curve in terms of falling on hard times. But now <laughs> now pretty much all the magazines are struggling. All yeah. the hard copy magazines yeah. are struggling to survive. Um, you know, even daily racing form, just, you know, between print costs and the migration of people over the to the Internet, it's a tough it's a tough uh form of, of media to um, to prosper in. And uh, the NTRA had just started, and I had seen just by reading an, uh, an article in the Thoroughbred Times, uh, another, another uh, defunct uh, publication, <laughs> the Thoroughbred Times had an article about Thoroughbred Racing Communications is now being called NTRA Communications, and oh, by the way, uh, three people have just left. Well, I, you know, I didn't know why they had left. I had assumed it had to do with change of leadership. Those things happen. So I just called up uh, one of the people, Peggy Hendershot, who I had dealt with uh, by virtue of doing those polls every week, and one thing led to another. It turns out they did need help. I went in and interviewed actually with Rick Bedeker, who was uh, mm. working with the NTRA at that time, pre-TVG. He left the NTRA to go to TVG but um, and started working there in, uh, I believe it was May of 1999. And it, uh, it, it was a little bit like running away and joining the circus <laughs> to go follow one's passion like that. Yeah. But it was... Uh, it was uh, ultimately it turned out to be a great move. You know, you, you mentioned something uh, funny that just brought back memories for me of uh, hiding the racing form under the New York Times when you're at the Reader's Digest. I, I have I found earlier in my life, I, I make no secret of it anymore, but I, I and I'm sure many horse players have a similar thing where especially, you know, you're working in a professional organization, you're very careful about when and to whom you reveal your passion for horse racing because you kind of get accustomed to that look right um or you anticipate that look when you say it um and you have sure, to choose your spots carefully you had to not anymore right i don't care anymore i'm sure you don't either obviously but uh it it, it is an interesting phenomenon yeah i mean you it especially when you're a little younger you don't want people to think you're drinking on the job or you know <laughs> right. and 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 
unfortunately, in some people's eyes, you know, playing the ponies is not very many steps removed from, uh, you know, drinking on the job, right, right. showing up drunk to work. Right. I mean, it, it, it's it's as if you're, you know, some people think you're not a serious person or you're a compulsive gambler or whatnot. And, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose it's still the same to some degree. I mean, uh, I had one employer early, early in my career tell me, you know, under he heard I was playing the horses and he didn't take a dim view of that. But that you know that that was fine. I not everybody not everybody sees the the positive side of of wagering. Mm. You know they just they're just familiar with people whose you know lives were negatively affected, whether it be by you know drinking or gambling. And I get that. My my grandfather wasn't real keen on gambling. So I wasn't real keen on telling him anything I was doing back in those days. That's just the way people, you know, people's views on this, that, or the other thing. And it's, uh, I, I think it's a case, Bill, when you get a little older, it's like you say, we're all a little more comfortable in our own skin and we're a little more established and we are what we are, but, uh, and we've proven that we can do the job and that we're not, uh, drunks or compulsive gamblers and people let you be a little bit more to to enjoy what you want to enjoy well you know you raise an interesting point there's no doubt that um there there are compulsive gamblers who are you know horse racing uh followers and um but you know you you kind of touched on this earlier when we were talking about contest players and I find more often than not uh I, maybe I'm just just I'm being selective about this but I find many horse racing aficionados, uh, gamblers, to be well-read, uh, to be inquisitive, um, and to have kind of a well-rounded sense of the world and and knowledge about it, uh, whether they be crossword puzzle players or, you know, whatever. I, I, I find as many people, if not more, to be of the horse racing variety, to be, as I said, very, very well-rounded, which is completely counter to the a popular perception, but that's that's mine. I wonder if you have encountered the same thing. I am in one hundred percent agreement with you in terms of contest players, Bill. I mean, when when I was at the NTRA and we first started, before we had run the very first NHC back at uh, MGM Grand in two thousand, mm. um, we didn't know who was going to show up. And back then, qualifying took on any number of forms. I mean, you could. Uh, you could win a contest uh, out of 100 people, or you could win a contest where one person out of 8,000 who showed up at Aqueduct moved on, or uh, some tracks. I remember our first NHC, we had a proverbial little old lady who was a, a elementary school teacher in New Hampshire who won some tournament at Rockingham Park that she had attended just on a on a lark. And she was actually leading after the first day at the MGM Grand, and it, oh. it, it it was a good enough story. We were able to get it into USA Today in, in oh, wow. days one and two. But um, that we didn't know. Gosh, are we going to get railbirds? You know the, the mm. stereotypical um, you know race tracker or, or or what? And it 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 soon became apparent we were getting anything but railbirds. We were getting people who were kind of above average in both education, professional accomplishment, and and it, it plays exactly to what you just said, that people who were playing the game 
especially those I would say who are playing it at, a, at an above average level, at least in terms of performance, meaning successful contest players are absolutely the opposite, the polar opposite of the stereotypical, you know, ham and egg race tracker. Um, these people tend to be bright. They tend to be thoughtful. They tend to be educated. They tend to have been um, successful professionally. They're not all that way, but by far, that's the, the majority. If you took a random, a, a random uh, cross section of people in the grandstand at a track on Thursday, I don't know that the results would skew so positively in terms of Fair. education yep. and professional accomplishment. But within the contest world, it's absolutely the case. You know, uh, you brought up an interesting point, one that I had, had meant to delve into, too, that, uh, you know, you were the MC, I guess, if you will, of the NHC for a number of years. But you were, you were there for the founding, too, which I, I had, candidly, I, I, I had forgotten about. Uh, and, and you touched on that a little bit. The first one was at NGM Grant. How many players did you have that, that first year? And, and, and how did you see it grow over, the, over time and evolve? Uh, it, it grew um, exponentially in the first few years. I want to say, uh, now the first number that jumped into my head was 252, but I have to stop myself because that, that was the size of my high school graduating <laughs> class, so that, that's not the correct number. It was either like 170 or maybe 220, or maybe it was 170 the first year and 220 the second year. Anyway, it, it started at that level. I, I remember, I think the, uh, the first prize in year one was a hundred thousand and the total purse was 212,000. I think those numbers that 212 is jumbling up my mind in terms of the body count also, but, uh, and it, it it really took off from there. And, you know, like any other entity that experiences growth, it, it didn't grow in a straight line. It had, you know, leaps and bounds and then it would stay the same for, three years and then it would shoot back up again. It, but, but if you look at it, you know, from year one to what is it now year, I think they've done, they did their 20th last year. I mean, it's, it's one of the few areas in racing that's experienced growth um, along with, I guess, ADWs uh, or account wagering, mm -hmm. but it's, it, you know, it's been terrific and it's, it's given an, a different vehicle for fans of a certain stripe to enjoy their to enjoy the sport and enjoy it in a way that uh, as far as I'm concerned in in many in many cases keeps people playing the sport as opposed to allowing them to drift away to you know especially now with sports wagering so freely available mm. in so many states I mean I, I as a horse racing fan find myself distracted by the possibility of betting other things that are a whole lot of fun to bet on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, the last couple of years I've been playing a lot of contests in person, not online cause I don't play at horse tourneys, but, um, it's the contests are so much fun and it's, it really keeps me engaged in the game. And I'm not saying I wouldn't be if contests didn't exist, but I do think I wouldn't be as engaged as much. Well, given that you probably are barred from participating in horse journeys, I guess live is the way you have to go, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm. There's no rule that says I can't play horse tourneys, but there's. It's just a self-imposed rule okay. that mm -hmm. that I 
that I abide by and McKay Smith, the head of horse attorneys, agrees with that it doesn't make sense for it. It, it doesn't give a good look to the site. It, it's the look. Of, yeah, it's for, the look. For the, yeah. for the biweekly blogger to be uh, playing. And I, I don't think players would mind if I played. I think they would mind if I won. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we mind we mind when anyone else wins, Eric. Never yeah, mind you. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, oh, that guy. He must have gone. Uh, he must have pulled a what is it? The De Silva. He, he, oh, those Drexel guys that yes. went in and yeah. changed the results afterwards. <laughs> Chris Chris Harn and yes, not yeah. John De Silva. It's somebody else named the De subject Silva. of our podcast this coming week. By the way, we're recording this just before Breeders' Cup, and that's the. Subject of our podcast this coming week. So, oh, that's a that's a bright, cheery topic. Well, it, it's a you know it's, <laughs> it's it's a fascinating one. I actually got to dive in with uh, Bill Heller on it and got a lot of uh, thank God for the internet, right? You can get a ton of background information out of it. Um, the whole story was was very fascinating. But yeah, back to it, it would be a it would be a look thing because any, clearly anyone who was involved in the game would know there's there's no opportunity to you know fix the results, but it's just you know, I, I think you captured it accurately. It would be a look thing. Eric, talking about contests and attracting new players, um, you guys run a you know a variety of contests on horse players every on horse tourneys every every single day. It, and this is something I've been thinking about because you know we're all concerned about attracting new fans to the game. Is there any way, have you guys given any thought to designing any contest play that might appeal to someone who is, you know, someone interested in the game, new to the game, on the periphery of the game that could help kind of, you know, grow their interest and spur their interest along? Uh, well, we run free contests every week and we run contests for you know very small money five dollars or that type of thing very low stakes games all the time so we try to the the number of players we have gives us the luxury of running a variety of price points and still having it be worth our while to do mm -hmm. um and what we also try to do is offer a variety in terms of game selection um our bread and butter 98% of, or 95, I don't know, percent of what we do is the uh, traditional $2 win and place scoring. Yep. However, we also have survivor contests, which are popular in many circles where you just try to pick a horse mm. to finish in the money yep. and uh, to continue on. It's a, it, I, don't, I, I guess in theory, it's supposed to be easier. I'm terrible at those contests, but uh, anyway, that's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> And also contests where, you know, top 50% wins. So you just, you don't have to be first or second. You can just be in the top half of the field and you win, a, you know, granted a smaller prize, but we like people to experience the thrill of winning. We think that's part of what will keep, make them keep wanting to play. So it, there are, there's only so many different kinds of games that are, software will allow us to offer. Any, okay. any new game we develop, involves different scoring and then there's ramp up time for all of that but we try to we do try to be as flexible as possible by offering you know a, a decent variety of games and also price points that really run right down to zero well you know one thing i like to tell people about contest play the online contest play that i think is really helpful and it, it's been very helpful to me actually is um 
you can go in, you know, depending on what point in the contest you're in, whether it's a pick and pray or a live contest, but you can see what the other players played that maybe were more successful than you. And, and you know, you can kind of go back then and think about, well, was this a contest strategy play or was there a handicapping angle that I missed? But I've found that being able to go back and look at what other players played has been helpful to me, both in terms of strategic decisions and handicapping angles too. Because sometimes, you know, you'll see how do they pick this one and you go back, you look at like, wow, how did I miss that? You know, um, Mm -hmm. but others you can see are purely just strategic plays, but you know, contests are interesting because there's the, there's both elements, uh, even in a pick and pray of strategy and handicapping and, you know, balancing those two. Without question. It's a lot of fun. Certainly for the pick and praise, it can be a lot of fun to choose a player or two who you admire or look up to and and then take his or her 10 or 12 plays and kind of go back and retrofit them. All right. What types of horses is this person who's very successful looking to play in contest situations? Typically, you know, oh, this this person's going for six to one and up. But I noticed he picked a favorite in this race and a 30 to one shot in that race. But, you know, if you do that enough, you get a feel for what types of horses, um, at least odds wise, that people tend to shoot mm-hmm. for. You can't you can't always tell the reasoning why, you know, you and I might like the same horse for completely different reasons. <laughs> but but uh, if you do it enough times, you do kind of get a feel for a player's tendencies and preferences. Um, sometimes in live tournaments, those can be a little more instructive in terms particularly of, particularly of uh, late game strategy. Right. The person in front may be just looking to play in the last race, not a horse that uh, he likes the best, but a horse that would do him the most good in terms of blocking other people and, and which horse he or she chooses can be a function of how much he or she is ahead by and uh, what the odds are of the various horses in this upcoming final race. And then and then it can become a fun game. All right. You know. Uh, Duncliffe behind me is going to think I'm going to bet the three to one shot. So I'm I'm going to he's he's thinking I'm going to bet the three to one shot. So he won't bet that one. He'll bet the four to one shot. So I'll screw him up by betting the four to one <laughs> right. shot and blocking him. Yep. Um, and, and that's actually kind of fun when people try to think along with the game or outwit one's opponent. And, um, you know, it's just part it's part of the game. Some people don't like it when uh, they, they feel the last race comes down to more gamesmanship than uh, classical handicapping. But that's. That's just part of game theory. If you know, right. Right. if somebody wants one hundred percent classical handicapping, then a then a pick and pray, exactly. or maybe just paramutual wagering, is is more to his or her taste. With uh, a contest play, there are rules, there are parameters, and anytime there are rules or param- parameters in a game, there's game theory and gamesmanship, and so it is uh, with horse racing contests. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring that up. Every once in a while, you'll see comments uh, in in articles and things about contests where someone inevitably will get on and say, "Ah, these people are just you know stabbing at long price winners every uh, time." And and first of all, that reveals a tremendous ignorance about the contest because, as you said, and Chris Lamry made the point when I interviewed him earlier on the podcast that you know different rules for different contest types dictate different strategies, but. The other thing I always think about when I hear people say that is um, the line from Rounders where Mac Damon's character is talking about the World Series of Poker and he says, which is not quite true, but it's, you know, it's the same people at the final table every year. Do you think they're just the luckiest people in the world or, the, you know, <laughs> <laughs> are they actually good at what they do? Yeah. And uh, everybody, as far as I'm concerned, everybody's entitled to their preferences on preferred contest format. I, you know. I can like chocolate ice cream, you can like vanilla, and that doesn't mean either one of us is wrong. I do think the crowd who complain about, oh, those, they're just a bunch of stabbers, I think a lot of them, and this might come across as mean, but I think a lot of them feel that any horse above seven to one is an unhavable, right. you know, long shot yeah. stab. And people like that, shouldn't be playing contests and probably shouldn't be playing the horses at all. If that's, you know, if that's your mindset in terms of what constitutes a legitimate playable, haveable horse without stabbing. I mean, there are so many players who will play horses way higher than eight to one and really like them and quite often win with them. And that's, Hey, it, if you can, if I can only pick horses, you know, if, if, if eight to one starts to get me out of my comfort zone, I can't like a horse that's more than that. And you have a comfort zone where you can identify, like, and win with horses that are 15 to one, then you're going to be twice as good a handicapper as I am over the long run. You know, and that, that brings up an interesting topic, Eric. Um, that, of course, earlier this year, we had the great uh, NHC free contest controversy i think it was in march or yeah i think it was in march where um you know for nhc entry there's a i think maybe five to seven free contests every year on horse players um and this i know you remember this particular day because everyone who's involved in contests does um the seven winners uh there were seven first place there were five free seats awarded to the nhc but there was a tie among seven players who all selected the four in every single race. And that obviously ignited a huge uh, hue and cry amongst the horse racing uh, aficionado population. I, I know what my view was of that um, and, and, and how I felt about how that was handled, but I'm curious how, how you felt about it. There seemed to be a lot of outrage over it. Mm. And uh, you can count me among those who are not outraged. Uh, I, maybe I'm, I'm too laid back a person, uh, but I, I had trouble getting angry over something like that. Um, it, I, and to me, it was just one of those them's the breaks types of things, yeah. you know, and I, I just, you know, people play numbers and colors every day at the track when they bet a, a horse because they like the name Nobody comes tapping them on the shoulder after the race saying you should give that money back. It wasn't legitimately <laughs> right. won. Um, you know, I studied the form of that race for two hours and my horse lost. So it's not right that you uh, played your license plate number or, or 
played a horse because it had the same name as your your Aunt Harriet. Um, that's just racing. That's that's not just racing. It's life. It's luck. There there is some luck involved in life as well as in racing and. You know, is it an ideal situation? No, but it's one of those things that's going to happen now and again. It's it, it happened before that. It will happen again. And uh, I know there are some people who really, you know, rack their brain to come up with better, different ways of doing those free contests. <clears throat> and, I, you know, that's fine. I, know, I Whatever they think is... Uh, people will enjoy the most is what I think they should do. It, I, I mean, one of our principles, you know, at horse tourneys, whether it comes to the types of contests we run or the types of races we pick, we want whatever people are going to like the most. And I think that that goes for contest or even free contest formats. The one thing I'll say is, you know, these free contests that involve it presumably are kind of the front door to contests, at least within the realm of the NHC. So you're hoping to attract new players with them. I'm not sure that you're attracting new players by making people play two days. I agree. I totally agree with you on that. Totally. Yeah. Agree with that. So yeah. that, that would be the one little head scratcher that I would have beyond that. Um, you know, you don't want people saying, wait a minute, I have to spend how much time I got to look at, what 24 races yeah now? yeah but um you know these things are going to happen uh anyway it, it, it's it doesn't mean that the that, that the different formats are wrong if there's any problem to me the format kind of is what it is it can be a decider and whether you play something or not but um you know if the if a format's good people will like it and play it meanwhile the people who played all the fours in a lot of cases, part of why, why it, one of many reasons it didn't get me angry is in a lot of cases, these people have paid 50 bucks for an NA to a, be a member. NA, That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that $50 among other things buys them the right to participate in however many five or six free tournaments yeah. during the year. So if they didn't add the, the opportunity to handicap, are they supposed to just like, not play no they're going to play and they're going to enter numbers at random and some of those who enter numbers at random are just going to opt to do so by picking the same number across the board but they were within their rights as dues paying members of the 2019 nhc tour to do what they did no i'm in complete agreement with you i thought there was a real overreaction to that whole thing in fact one of my first reactions when i saw it because you know you could follow the contest live as it was happening i was at santa anita that day but um you know is i was and i didn't finish anywhere near the top of that but you know i thought to myself if i make the nhc i want to be playing against people that just pick the same number over <laughs> and over again right <laughs> more exactly. of them bring them in yeah you know let's let, uh, put me up against those who believe in the supernatural anytime yeah 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 it, it, I, I, I i like i said i completely agree there was an overreaction i do like i said i was at santa anita that day and uh we were sitting in the box and i you know was following the contest results and um it was the uh philly steak at gulfstream that i think was a cookie dough or gelfrin gelfrin right who won it like yes. uh, 50 to Good memory yeah 50 to one and and that was like the eighth race in the sequence. I, we were there with some friends, and I'm watching it. In the box in front of us, they had it on, and I'm watching it. And I started, I started almost giggling. 
my girlfriend one. I'm like, it's another four. This is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, you could see what was playing out. Yeah. But, uh, it was, uh, uh, we had a guy just uh, last weekend at Horse Tourneys that played fours in the last 10 consecutive of 12 races. He played two different horses in the first two. And, and one of those won at 17 to one. And then he just used fours for the last 10 races. It was a, a, a pick and pray. And, uh, you know, I, are you supposed to get mad at a guy like that? He did pick a winner. Yeah. Maybe, you know, one of his two non-fours was a, a 17 to one winner. And I wondered if he had, it was a, a week when most of the contests were live format. And I, I thought maybe the guy might've entered thinking it was a live tournament and only oh. had time to enter his first two picks yeah. and then realized, Oh my gosh, it's not live. It's a pick and pray and had to scramble at the end. Cause we, Oh, that's we interesting. Yeah. Call us uh, cold and callous. We won't refund picks under those, uh, under that scenario, like kind of the sob story of not that this person tried to get a refund, but you know, if, if Trust me, if we offered refunds to everybody who, you know, <laughs> oh, I didn't realize it yeah, was a pick yeah. and pray or, oh, I yeah. didn't, you know, <laughs> we, we'd have more refunds than successful entrance of, uh, no, yeah, I'm exaggerating there, but uh, it's not fair to the other players if they see, you know, 75 entries and then at off time it's 68, so. Uh, no, anyway, <laughs> I'll I'll tell you a funny story. I actually was one of those people that got turned aside for a refund. I was trying to change my pick um, as they were loading into the gate at Belmont, and um, uh, you know, the, I think the rule is once fifty uh, percent of the the gate is loaded, the you shut it off for any any changes to picks, right? And Correct. this was like the first or second horse in the gate, and I went to change my pick, and it said, you know, you can't change your pick, and I. I fired off an email to the, you know, the client service thing. And, uh, you know, I was told, no, you know, we look, we shut it off at the, at the right time. There's no question there. And then I realized after, after I got the response back that I had actually, uh, I was, I had DVR'd it or I, I had paused it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and I did fess up in all honesty. I wrote back and I said, look, you know, I really screwed up here. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny, Bill, there was one time, um, I don't nor I, I don't ever do this, but one time there was most of our employees are down in the Tampa St. Pete area. Okay, and about a, I want to say a year and a half ago there was a hurricane that was kind of fixing the barrel through there, so those guys all had to evacuate. And oh wow, uh, one of our other employees was otherwise engaged, so. I had to take a crash course in closing out these races in, you know, <laughs> okay. and, and you, it's done manually, but you learn a few things in the process of doing it. So most uh, our regular guys who do this on a daily basis, they've got, you know, like the multiple screens up their homes almost look like an OTB <laughs> and, and they've, they've got the Roberts, you know, RTN feeds coming in in real time. So I'm sitting here like an idiot in my house now I've got you know I got a TV I've got a laptop computer and at the same time I'm trying to like watch four tracks on two devices oh and, yeah. and the other thing you don't realize is depending on what channel you're watching the feeds aren't necessarily like correct right to right. the second there could be a lag time 
even uh, like if I watch Naira Racing on the Naira app, or yep. if, I, if I'm watching on Apple TV, the TVG app, that's even farther behind. Yes. I would watch normally on TVG through my cable. So there, there's always a lag time. I'm sure we've all made a bet or tried to make a bet as before the last horse is loaded and we get shut out and we wonder why. And it's, it's just, there's, there is some built in lag to these signals. I don't know if it's, if it's just a technology thing or what, but, um, so that's part of why, uh, we cancel races in theory when the, you know, the half of it. Yeah. 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 It just gives ourselves a little cushion against these built-in lags. Well, it's actually interesting about the lags. Uh, You know, I have spent some time out in the West Coast over the last several years, and um, my brothers and I are all New England Patriot fans, and so we'll be watching a playoff game, right, and we'll be texting with each other, and we quickly realized that when I was on the West Coast, I was probably five or ten seconds behind them, uh, and so I'd, yeah. I'd get a, I'd get a text. Oh my God! I'm like, don't don't tell me what happened. I don't know yet. <laughs> we have to we have to shut the texting off because of that. Actually, yeah, it's like being at a bar when the um, uh, you'd be watching two groups of people will be watching the same game, but one of them is watching a, a, a TV set that's that's receiving a cable feed and the other is receiving like a direct TV feed mm, yep. and they're like four seconds off and you're, it, 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 it can be like incredibly annoying once you realize the discrepancy that, you know, to have people cheering before you even see what happened. And uh, yeah, so I, I've seen that phenomenon in play though, though not, not with the, I might have with with racing at an OTB here or there, but uh, yeah, it's annoying for sure. Well, you know where I've seen it, and it's I'm surprised they have not been able to fix this, but up at Saratoga every summer, if you are watching the TV versus watching the race live in front of you, you are a couple of seconds behind on the TV, and it's a really huh. weird feeling. Uh, I've seen that at tracks. Usually, it, so you're saying the TV feed is two seconds behind or thereabouts? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, yeah, that's a that could be an issue, and that's well, that's where the lag comes from. But uh, at least it was consistent for all the monitors at the track. I would imagine. Yeah, right. yeah. I just realized you got to pick one to watch. Don't don't try going back and forth because <laughs> you're going to get vertigo. <laughs> yeah. Hey, oh. Eric, this has been a terrific conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, let me just ask you one more question, yeah. and then, then a request. Um, if you were the national commissioner of racing for a day, what is the one thing that you would change that would help grow the popularity of our sport? Well, everything it has to be answered in context. And I'm not sure that what I'm going to say would grow the sport, but I think it would help uh, preserve the sport. Um, I think you know how in real estate they say the uh, the most the three most important things are location, location, location. Mm-hmm. Um, I think racing has clearly gotten to the point. It didn't just get here now. It got it. It really has been the case since first Barbaro and then Eight Bells mm-hmm. in uh, yep. two thousand and eight. That the three most important things in racing right now is safety, safety, safety. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
you don't see many media relations directors in racing in part because there's no no media anymore that cover it outside of you know the very biggest events but the industry needs to really prioritize safety both in terms of what it's doing and how it's presenting itself to the public and Part of the problem, Bill, I think, is there are, are a lot of racing jurisdictions that can't afford to do it right. Right. Yeah. And racing's got to take a hard look and decide, you know, if a if a track is just squeaking by or a you know, circuit can't afford to conduct racing at the highest levels of safety and, and welfare, should that track or circuit continue operating? Because if they do and they keep messing up, they're going to bring us all down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, everything racing does right now has to be, uh, ha- has to be done uh, with safety at its forefront. Um, and, and there's a blueprint for this in many respects. I mean, in 2012, the New York State, uh, the New York Task Force on Racehorse Safety um, really took a, a hard, clear-eyed look at what was going on mm. in Naira yep. and created just an outstanding document that, a could be used as a blueprint for for any tracks that are needing to step up its game in that area and b there are techniques that the industry could do to maybe make safety a more visible component you know i'd I'd love to see just as one small thing i'd love to see paddock veterinarians or racetrack veterinarians wearing some sort of uniform that identifies them as such I think that's just one thing that could huh. needs to be conveyed so that people see what's oh, going on. Oh, the visibility, on. yeah, yeah. It's one thing, for example, to say, well, you know, since these uh, unfortunate accidents, we've stepped up pre-race veterinary inspections by 68%, and as a result, our scratches have gone up. Our vet scratches are up 43%. That's all good, but at some point, people want to see it in action. Yeah, and, oh, that's uh, a really good point. I mean, there are various things the industry could do that it's not yet doing. Um, if it's due to funding, then racing needs to reassess how it's allocating its resources, uh, in my opinion. I, you know, I think you raise a really good point about that if, if a track or a circuit is not able to adequately uh, fund or afford the safety measures that really uh, have to be paramount in every jurisdiction's um, uh, intra- view right now, then you really have to question if they should be able to continue. Of course, there's no national body that could, you know, uh, confer that or or or, or 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 bar them from doing so. But yeah, you know that that Naira uh, document that you referenced was obviously um, in reaction to the whole controversy when they raised the purses on claiming prices and all of a sudden you had a spate of horses dying and I, I think at Del Mar this summer they did an exceptional job of you know highlighting safety and really emphasizing safety with between race inspections and more vets watching workouts and things like that but you made a very good point about just the visibility of them to the patrons if they can see that this is a veterinary official watching and that that you know, because they have some distinctive uniform or something that adds a layer of credibility there, not a layer, but it, but it adds credibility there to the um, perception of the public, I think. Yeah. And, and this is, this issue is uh, uh, certainly not all of it, but a lot of it is about perception. And right now the public perception of racing 
not not on the part of you and I, but on the part perhaps of our neighbors or our friends yeah. who don't care about racing is, um, to quote Gerald Ford or to paraphrase Gerald Ford, not good. <laughs> Very well played. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week when we talk with artist Audrey Menefee. In the meantime, may the horse be with you.